BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow, what a what a convention. Michelle Obama just knocked it out of the park. I thought Bernie Sanders did a brilliant job of speaking to people like me, you know, basically people who have supported him for years and years and and uh, share his perspective on politics. It was extraordinary. We've got a huge show today. Mimi Kennedy's going to drop by in about 45 minutes, uh, you know, the star of Moms. She's uh, also on the board of Progressive Democrats of America. She's going to be talking about how to check your voter registration, a pretty important thing. Um, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, the oldest daughter of Robert Kennedy, and Ben Wickler on the uh, convention. Today is the anniversary of the ratification 100 years ago today. The 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, or I think correctly frame it, with which women seized the right to vote. There's just a lot going on and and an enormous amount of news. But I think that the main theme of last night's Democratic Convention, repeated over and over by multiple people, and we'll we'll dig into that a little bit as we go through the three hours of our program today, is that uh, Joe Biden is a decent man good guy that you can trust who actually has empathy and cares about other people, none of which are qualities that Donald Trump has. And that Donald Trump is corrupt, is incompetent, and is mentally ill. And I would add a coda to that, that as a consequence of his corruption, his incompetence, and his mental illness, he is actually a danger to the United States and has harmed the United States, has hurt us both domestically and abroad. Which raises three questions. How did we end up with a corrupt, incompetent, and mentally ill president? How did he get enough power to be able to twist the levers of government toward his own re-election? Something that has not been done in the past in the United States and something that's a hallmark of tin pot dictators. And why do Republicans in the United States Senate continue to support him? And I think all the answers come back to basically two things. The answers of where did this power come from, by and large, setting aside the police powers for a moment, it goes back to 1976-1978, the Buckley decision and the Bilotti decision before the U.S. Supreme Court that said for the first time in the history of America, and this is what set up the Reagan Revolution, for the first time in the history of America, if a politician is owned by a billionaire, if a billionaire provides enough money to that politician that they are singularly responsible for that politician having their job and they dance to the tune of that politician in all matters, we used to call that corruption, we used to call that bribery, it used to be illegal. The Supreme Court in 1976 said if a billionaire wants to own a politician or 10 politicians or 100 politicians or a whole political party, That is now, henceforth, forevermore, world without end, amen, going to be considered protected free speech under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And then two years later, in the First National Bank versus Bilotti decision, the Supreme Court said, oh, by the way, we're extending this right to corporations, corporate persons, as well as to individual human being billionaires. And... This, be, this began, you know, basically the corruption of both the Democratic and Republican parties, but the Republican Party sold out entirely 
in 1980. It put Reagan over the top, and it massively expanded the influence of lobbyists who were the bribers, because now the bribees, the politicians, could openly take money and gifts and all kinds of goodies from these lobbyists. So the lobbyists, the industries, set out Forty-year campaign that brought us what today we call the Trump administration, where I believe it's literally every. There might be a couple of exceptions to this rule, but if there are, they're not at the top of my consciousness. Every major government agency is now run by either a lobbyist or a person with an axe to grind, a billionaire with an axe to grind, like you know Betsy DeVos over at Education or billionaire Wilbur Ross over at Commerce. But basically the rest of them, you know, the EPA is run by a coal lobbyist. The Interior Department is run by an oil lobbyist. The FCC is run by a telecom lobbyist. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So he's basically corrupted all these things. And that's because of the Supreme Court decision. And then after 9-11, Congress created this new super police agency consolidating a whole bunch of different police agencies together and intelligence agencies together using the word that Rudolf Hess used First, in 1937, when he introduced Adolf Hitler at the Nuremberg rally, where they decided to borrow a word from the Zionists who were trying to create a homeland for Jewish people in what we now call Israel in the Middle East, they borrowed that word, the Nazis, that word homeland, Heimat in, the, in German, they borrowed that word to apply to what had always previously been called the fatherland. And now it was called the homeland. And so, you know, Bush took this word that had never been used to describe the United States. We never called this the homeland. This country is literally only the homeland to Native Americans. But it's got that good blood and soil, blood and earth, blood and air sound to it that the Nazis were so fond of. So George Bush and Dick Cheney named this new organization the Homeland Security Department. And all these massive police powers were reconsolidated or highly consolidated and concentrated under the office of the president, which is you know, why we were able to see Trump use these powers in Lafayette Park and here in Portland, as well as on our southern border. And he's using them now to track down and selectively prosecute people who are protesting in favor of democracy and against fascism. They are anti-fascists, Antifa. And Donald Trump, is, you know, he's often sabotaged by his own incompetence and his own mental illness. You know, like he blurted out the post office thing, right? Had he not said that, probably he would have gotten away with a hell of a lot more of it than he did. But the next Republican president who wants to be a fascist dictator, I'm looking at you, Tom Cotton, will probably not be as impaired or as incompetent as Donald Trump. And we need to get ready for that. You know, to save our republic, we need an immediate national discussion about how to break up or at least constitutionally constrain the Department of Homeland Security and get money out of politics at all levels. Now, that's assuming that we do take some political power. In Louisiana, for example, the Secretary of State, Kyle Ardoin, has a new plan. If you want an absentee ballot in Louisiana, you want to vote in the election without exposing yourself to COVID, right now, the way the Louisiana law is being enforced is that if you want an absentee ballot, you have to at least, well, you have to give an excuse. And one of the acceptable excuses is, I have a pre-existing condition that puts me at risk for getting COVID. You know, like I'm over 50, or I, I'm overweight, or I have heart disease, or I have diabetes, or I have high blood pressure, whatever. But see, the problem with that is that at least a third of Americans have pre-existing conditions that make COVID very dangerous for them. So what he wants to do is say that you can only get an exemption, a COVID exemption, to get an absentee ballot in Louisiana if you have tested positive for the coronavirus. If you are on death's door, if you are really sick and you can get a positive test, which is damn hard to do, because basically you can only get the tests if you show up and say, I've got symptoms in Louisiana. And if you can get that test and it is positive, then you can vote if you're still alive. Right. Meanwhile, an 82-year-old man, Don White, in Humble, Texas, says uh, he's been tracking his medications. They're two weeks late. It's been sitting for 10 days on the floor of the North Houston Post Office. His daughter had to get his heart medication at the local drugstore to hold him over. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What's going on here is beyond a crisis. It's absolutely insane. 
Tom Harbin here with you. So Michelle Obama just peeled the skin off Donald Trump. I mean, it was extraordinary. And apparently he watched because he was tweeting the, or somebody told him about it because he was, in fact, probably he saw somebody comment on it on Fox News. Louise and I flipped over to Fox News during the first hour of the convention and there was Hannity talking to Don Jr. So we went back to the convention. It's like, you know, the gag reflex and all that. But Michelle Obama, she said, Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do this job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is, she said, you know, borrowing from his phrase. And spot on. And clearly it flipped out Donald Trump. He tweeted this morning, somebody please explain to Michelle Obama that Donald J. Trump would not be here in the beautiful White House if it weren't for the job done by your husband, Barack Obama. Uh, Let's see, what's that? Putting the economy back together after Republican George W. Bush crashed it? Restoring some integrity and honor to the White House after George Bush and Dick Cheney tortured and murdered people illegally? It's crazy. This is an absolutely remarkable story. Miles Taylor is a young man who rose up to become the chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security. Working frequently in the White House, there are photos of him and Donald Trump. He wrote an op-ed in Washington Post, and Donald Trump tweeted, Many thousands of people work for our government. With that said, a former disgruntled employee named Miles Taylor, who I do not know, never heard of him, said he left and is is on the open arms fake news circuit. Said to be a real stiff. They will take anyone against us. Right. So Miles Taylor responds to Trump on Twitter with a photo of him and Trump smiling into the camera, both giving thumbs up. Miles Taylor, by the way, is no saint. Miles Taylor was the number two to uh, Kirsten Nielsen when she was doing her family separation policy, and he did not resign or object. You know, this is a guy who's got a certain amount of blood on his hands. But nonetheless, he has said enough. Enough. The chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security He said, after serving for more than two years in the Department of Homeland Security's leadership during the Trump administration, I can attest that the country is less secure as a direct result of the president's actions. Now, then he gets into exactly why. And this is shocking, damning, sadly not surprising, but astonishing. He says, the president has tried to turn the Department of Homeland Security, the nation's largest law enforcement agency, into a tool used for his political benefit. Now, let me add that, to the best of my knowledge, no president has ever successfully done that. Richard Nixon tried to get the Justice Department, or the FBI specifically, to investigate his political enemies, and he tried to get the IRS to audit people. Those two actions were one of the articles of impeachment against Nixon. That is not only unconstitutional behavior, it is illegal. Well, Trump was doing the same thing, not specifically the FBI and IRS, although God only knows what we're going to find when he leaves office, assuming that there's even a single piece of paper left over. Trump is not only doing the same thing, but he's put it on steroids. So back to Miles Taylor. He says, the president has tried to turn DHS, the nation's largest law enforcement agency, into a tool used for his own political benefit. He insisted on a near total focus on issues that were central to his reelection, in particular building a wall on the U.S. border with Mexico, though he was often talked out of bad ideas at the last moment. Miles Taylor writes in the Washington Post. The president would make obviously partisan requests of DHS, including when he told us to close the California-Mexico border during a March 28, 2019 Oval Office meeting. It would be better for him politically, he said, than closing, you know, he, he just wanted to close the California part of the border, which is shorter and easier to do, and most of it is already 
you know, got a substantial wall. So it just involved closing some border crossings. He says, he told us to close the California-Mexico border. It would be better for him politically, he said, than closing long stretches of the Texas or Arizona border. Another time Trump suggested, again, Miles Taylor writing, he told us to dump illegal immigrants in Democratic-leaning sanctuary cities and states to overload their authorities, as he insisted on several times. Then he talks about how Trump's lack of discipline, his inability to concentrate, his unwillingness to read was, quote, constant source of frustration. One day, he writes, in February 2019, when congressional leaders are waiting for an answer from the White House on a pending deal to avoid a second government shutdown, the president demanded a DHS phone briefing. Now, keep in mind, the government's on the edge of being shut down. People won't get their Social Security checks. You know, veterans won't get their medication. I mean, disaster. A national disaster is on the horizon. And Donald Trump wants to spend his time on a briefing with DHS, quote, to discuss the color of the wall. He was particularly interested, Miles Taylor writes, in the merits of using spray paint and how the steel structure should be coated. And then Miles Taylor adds, episodes like this occurred almost weekly. He says the decision-making process itself was itself broken. Again, this is almost certainly because a, Trump doesn't have any kind of attention span at all. He just flits from thing to thing, whatever happens to tickle his fancy. He really is the boy king. If you were to take a young man and at a very early age, Donald Trump started receiving a, you know, an allowance, as it were, from his father of, I believe it was $100,000 a year when he was three years old. So you take a young man and you say, you, sir, are the golden one. You are the chosen one. You are rich. You are above mere mortals. You are not part of the rabble. And you can have whatever you want and you can do whatever you want because you are beyond challenge. You are beyond, you know, any kind of problem at all. So you take this young man in a situation like this. You know, what kind of damage does that do to his psychology? What kind of sociopathy does that create? This is the boy king. This is the mad king Ludwig built this castle in Bavaria. Louise and I have been there. It was, it's totally strange. It's, it's, it's the castle that the Disney castle is based on. And it was the same thing. He was raised by distant parents who didn't much care about him and given anything he wanted whenever he wanted it. And he couldn't focus on things and he couldn't make reasonable decisions. And when he died, the people of southern Germany just erupted in, in applause, as it were. Well, back to Miles Taylor. He talks about the decision-making process was broken. Trump would abruptly endorse policy proposals with little or no consideration by him or his advisors of possible knock-on effects. He talks about an example in 2018 when Jeff Sessions, who was then the Attorney General, announced that a White House urging a, quote, zero-tolerance policy to prosecute anyone who crossed the border illegally. The agencies involved were unprepared to implement the policy, Miles Taylor writes, causing a disastrous backlog of detentions that ultimately left migrant parents and their children separated. And then he goes on to say top DHS officials were regularly diverted from dealing with genuine security threats by the chore of responding to these inappropriate and often absurd executive requests. He says, incredibly, after this ill-conceived operation was rightly halted, this was the, uh, you know, the, the we've got everything here. Uh, you know, uh, in the following months, the president repeatedly exhorted DHS officials to restart it and to implement an even more deliberate policy of pulling migrant families apart en masse so that adults would be deterred from coming to the border for fear of losing their children. The president was visibly furious on multiple occasions when my boss, then Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, refused. Do you think there's an untold story here? It's certainly looking like it. He said, one morning it might be a demand to shut off congressionally appropriated funds to a foreign ally that had angered him. And that evening it might be a request to sharpen the spikes atop the border wall so that they'd be more damaging to human flesh. 
How much will that cost us? Trump asked. Meanwhile, he says, uh, Miles Taylor says, Trump showed vanishing little interest in subjects of vital national security interest, including cybersecurity, domestic terrorism, and malicious foreign interference in U.S. affairs. He points out the DHS has 250,000 employees. He says, you can't run an organization like this. This is nuts. My phrase, not his. His phrase was, at DHS, daily management of its quarter million employees suffered because of these frequent follies, putting the safety of Americans at risk. And then he goes on to talk about what has happened abroad. And he, mostly he cites John Bolton. And John Bolton, of course, said that Donald Trump had turned basically every foreign policy decision into something about whether or not it's going to help Donald Trump politically or whether or not it's going to make money for Trump hotel properties around the world, like in Turkey. He says the president has similarly undermined U.S. security abroad. He says Bolton got it right. Today the nation has fewer friends and stronger enemies than when Trump took office. And then he gets into Trump's bungled response to coronavirus. He says this is the ultimate example. He says years of pandemic planning by DHS have been wasted. Yeah, you think? So we were, uh, I was just talking with Elise uh, Hogue of, of NARAL about the patriarchy that emerged, the white patriarchy in the 70s. Obviously, you know, the white patriarchy has been running this country since its inception. In fact, women were not even allowed to vote until 1920, and African Americans, in theory, couldn't vote until, uh, you know, immediately after the Civil War. And to this day, in actual practice, African Americans have a very difficult time voting in many parts of the United States and Hispanics. So, you know, it was basically all about white people and white male power in this country. It's very simple. You know, you have to acknowledge that. But there's also a history of this. I haven't read Elise's book, so I don't know if she digs into this. The book just came out. But I just finished writing a book that will be out next spring. It'll be out in about seven months. And it's titled The Hidden History of Oligarchy and Tyranny in the United States. And chronicles the rise the two times in the United States that oligarchy has risen up and tried to seize control of our federal government and was beaten back. And then how it's doing it again this third time, you know, using the vehicle of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And one of the things, one of the things that I read when I was researching this book was a book by, by Russell Kirk called The Conservative Mind. He wrote this book back in 1951. It was published in 50, 51, 52, 53. It was, there were several editions. Actually, it kept updating all the way into the 1980s. He's now passed away. But in The Conservative Mind, this was the book that informed and awakened and, and created a movement, uh, the modern-day conservative movement. This, this was the foundational book. This was the Bible, Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind. This was the book my dad read you know, the year that I was born in 1951. This was, this was the book that Barry Goldwater read. This was the book that, that uh, William F. Buckley read that got him started. And so I went back and I read The Conservative Mind. And basically, he starts out, the first chapter of the book is actually about Burke, Sir Edmund Burke, who said, and I'm paraphrasing this, I'm, I'm quoting this from memory, so consider it a paraphrase, it does me no harm if a man as servile as a tallow maker or hairdresser, candle maker or hairdresser, is allowed to work. But it does society considerable violence if such a man is allowed to vote. That was Russell Kirk. He is considered the founder of the modern conservative movement. He was a British politician and, and thinker and very, very rich guy back in the 1770s. Thomas Paine took a boat to uh, Europe, to England first. He was on his way to the French Revolution in the 1790s because he thought, oh, the French Revolution, this is cool. I'd like to see how that's working out. And uh, of course, when he got to France, ultimately he got arrested and had to be bailed out of France by James Monroe. But that's a whole other story. But when Thomas Paine arrived in England, he spent two weeks in Sir Edmund Burke's home and had this knockdown, drag out, two week long debate with Burke. And out of that, Thomas Paine wrote a book called The Rights of Man, which was a rebuttal to Burke. Okay, so a little history here. So Russell Kirk 
1951, writes this book, The Conservative Mind, and the first third of the book is all about Sir Edmund Burke and how what a brilliant thought, think, thought leader, and this is, these are the roots of the conservative movement. And then Kirk, keep in mind, this is 1951, and then Kirk gets into this rant, essentially, about how if women ever acquire political power, substantial political power, they will start demanding equal power in the workplace with men. If the middle class gets large enough and wealthy enough, he was arguing against unionization and against good wages for unionized workers. If they get rich enough, the middle class will start demanding political power. They pretty much did not have it in 1951, the working class. And if their children have continue to have free college education, because at that point in time, college was free in California. It was free all over the United States in many, many places. There were colleges in New York. There were colleges in Michigan. You know, uh, you could go to college for, for very, very little money in 1951. Both my parents went to college. They were both dead broke. Kirk said if they ever get essentially free college education, if this continues, you're going to have students protesting. And, you know, everybody thought this was kind of a crackpot book. Not the conservatives, the movement conservatives, but everybody else through the 50s. And then in 61, the birth control pill was legalized and the sexual revolution got kicked off. And women started saying, well, now that I can control my reproduction, I'd like to be in the workplace and have equal pay and equal power. And then, you know, the abortion decision and then hippies and then the anti-war movement. And at that point, the entire Republican Party and all these conservatives went back and started reading Russell Kirk again and said, holy crap, exactly what he predicted is coming true. This is the end of the republic because Kirk in the conservative mind basically said, when this happens, when women get power and start demanding the right to an abortion, when, when students start rebelling against their elders, when women want power in the workplace, when minorities, African-Americans and, and Hispanics starting, start demanding political power and the right to vote, when those things happen, socialism is right around the corner. It will turn America into Cuba. That was essentially Kirk's prediction. In the 60s, when the hippies happened and the anti-war movement happened, all these Republicans were like, holy crap, he was right. This is the end of the Republic. And that's where the Powell Memo in 1971 came from. That's where the Heritage Foundation and, the, and all these other think tanks that now animate America came from. That's where you know, Limbaugh and the whole right-wing radio movement came from. And at its core, as Elise was pointing out, was white men are losing their power. Or let's say it more correctly, power is being equally distributed across the United States, regardless of race or gender. That was intolerable to those people. You are listening to the Tom Hartman program. Just as it is intolerable to them now, as Donald Trump points out, any woman with any power Donald Trump calls nasty. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend is on the line with us. Kathleen is the uh, retirement security advocate, attorney and professor at Georgetown University, for, former lieutenant governor of Maryland, in fact, the first woman to hold that office, 2020 DNC delegate for Joe Biden, also the eldest child of Robert F. Kennedy. Democrats.org is the website. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since you've been here. I'm curious your take on how the convention went last night and what you're expecting tonight. 
I have to give Tom Perez, you know, a shout out because I think it's very difficult to put on a convention without the cheers that we're accustomed to. But I think he did a really, really good job showing how much support there is for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris across the board, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, conservative or liberal. You're saying this is the team we want to be the next president, vice president of our country because we believe in the rule of law. We believe in opportunity for all. And we believe that America has better days ahead when we can trust one another, can have faith in one another and can have empathy for one another. And I think that message came across loud and clear last night. You know, I remember uh, the 1964 election. I I went door to door. I was 13 with my dad for Barry Goldwater. And the hit on Barry Goldwater was that he was going to cause a nuclear war, you know, the Daisy ad and all that kind of thing. I remember the 1980 election with Ronald Reagan. I was convinced. I mean, you know, within three years of going door to door with my dad for Barry Goldwater, I was out in East Lansing getting gassed in anti-war demonstrations. But, but, you know, I also remember 1980 where the warning from Democrats was that Ronald Reagan or some, you know, some folks were, and I was among them, were concerned that Ronald Reagan was crazy and might start World War III. But never in my lifetime, and I don't think in the history of the country, I mean, you go back to the XYZ affair during the John Adams presidency, I don't think that there has ever been a time in our country where there was not just a conversation about, but serious evidence all over the place, like we saw in this Intelligence Committee report this morning, that the President of the United States is actively working in the interests of another nation than the United States, that he has betrayed his country. This is mind-boggling. Absolutely. As you know, some of us have suspected that for quite a long time. Certainly, I think we've seen it with the COVID outbreak. We didn't see much care for our country or care for our citizens. But the, the fact that the chair of his campaign was so closely intertwined with the counterintelligence of the Russians is just so mind-boggling, so sad, so disgusting. I don't really have words for it. And this report was put out by the Republicans. That's right. Yeah, they control the Senate Intelligence Committee. So they're putting this out. I mean, they didn't have to put this out, and they're putting it out. This is saying something quite stunning about what they think of the head of their party. John Kasich and other Republicans reaching out and saying, yes. Do you think that we can put this country back together if enough people pull together? Absolutely. I think this is a very strong country. I mean, we did have a civil war and we did come back together. People were killed. They killed, as you know, five more than half a million people in a much smaller part of our population. And we came back together. It took a while. Some people would say we're still fighting over Confederate monuments. But we haven't had a war. And I think we're much more able to come back together now. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, Democrats.org, the DNC website. KKT underscore Kennedy is her Twitter handle. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor Townsend. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take good care. Bye. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. I caught this incredible little YouTube about how to check your voter registration that was done by actress, activist, writer, and the board chair, Progressive Democrats of America, Mimi Kennedy. Uh, She's also the star of the hit series Mom on CBS, or a star of it. PD America, of course, uh, .org, of course, is the website for Progressive Democrats. Uh, Mimi's Twitter handle is Mimi Kennedy LA. How do you check your voter registration? The thing that I think has confounded a lot of people is that it varies from state to state. So is there some way that we can all, you know, kind of standardize on doing this? Yeah, well, the way I did it was I just put check my voter registration and I got a menu of possibilities. And a big one was can I vote, which takes you to the National Association of the Secretaries of State. And then they take you to your state and your state has the voter rolls. So that's how I did it. You know, there are a lot of... Hang on just a second, Mimi. You said I put this in. You put it into what? Are these like search terms? You put it into Google or into DuckDuckGo? Yeah, in my browser, you know, at that top of my phone or the top of my computer. Right. When I go to... So you basically search for those words. 
Can I vote? Just put Can in I those vote. words. Okay. It'll start you. And what did you find? And I found NASS, which is National Association of Secretaries of State, along with a lot of other vote.org. But I took the NASS because it's government. They're not going to send me emails and make me subscribe to stuff I don't want. And that took me to my state, California. You know, it's what state are you in? And you say, I'm in this state. And then you go to your state website, and that's where the voter rolls are. Those are a state responsibility. Other aspects of voting are county responsibilities. Right. This is very much step one. Right? Yeah, I mean, if you're not registered one. to vote, you can't ask for an absentee ballot. This is step, step That's one. That's right. And, you know, you need to know your exact name. It's funny, my registered name, it was my married name plus my legal name plus an initial. It was complicated. And when I first checked for just my legal maiden name, which I thought well, that wasn't there and I almost had a heart attack. But I finally figured out what it is. This was some years ago. And it tells me how I'm registered. And in some states, it'll say active or inactive. And if you see inactive, then that's going to cause problems for you so it's early call your county registrar and there will be numbers we did a website 2020voterscalendar.org and it has links to every state and county so you can actually call your county now and go i'm inactive and i don't want to be how do i get active and you need to do that because what you see on your registration form is how the county knows to get in touch with you or not to get in touch with you and I'm also asking people, take a screenshot with your phone or computer it, once you see your registration is correct. Because in case there's any purging later on, that'll be evidence that it wasn't your fault. It something happened to the voter rolls. And these days we need evidence for everything. Right. So take a yeah. screenshot of your registration. So tell me about this website that you were just talking about. Did PDA have something to do with this, or is this just a standalone website that you like? Well, we have something to do with it in that members, me and Alan Minsky, who's our executive director, we thought we needed it. And Steve Rosenfeld is a journalist who was doing really good detail work down to the county level. So I know Steve, and I got in touch with him, and I said, let's put some of your research up, and I'm going to do an article. Alan's going to contribute. We have three articles there that describe the difficulties that voters face in trying to vote. And some of them are hidden rules, something called the surrender rule. How about where to drop off your voted mail ballot? I want to be specific. You can't always drop it off at the election day polling place. A lot of states won't take it. They need you to drop it off earlier, but by election day, they only want to deal with the at-poll votes. And unless you take it right to your county board of elections by 3 p.m. or 5 p.m., 7 or 8 p.m., I've seen it different in every state, they will not accept your voted mail ballot because it comes too late. You have to either send it through the mail with a postmark by election day, and some people don't want to do that. I get it. So they need to drop it off in person. And if you don't have a drop box, you've got to go right to your county election office. And by the way, at 2020 Voters Calendar, we have the addresses of your county elections office. But don't Mm -hmm. rely on dropping it off at the polling place on Election Day. You might be wrong. And then you'll have to turn around and drop it off at the county elections office and hope it's not one of the states where it needs to be in by 3 p.m. So an early voting site is probably okay. Again, check your local rules and 2020voterscalendar.org will give you county links to check all that. 2020voterscalendar.org, a product of uh, Progressive Democrats of America. That's absolutely great, Mimi. What did you think of uh, last night's convention? I loved it. I really loved it. I was so happy to see our leadership reflecting how I feel and what I want. I mean, it's not policy. We have a lot of work to do. But my God, to see the leadership speak and to see Bernie speak and Michelle Obama. And you know what? I wept during the rising. Sorry, but Mm. that got me. And all during Bernie's campaign, remember the America, we're all up to look for America in 2016, his primary video with Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Simon. But this one got me, Bruce Springsteen's The Rising and all those marches and the people. And it just made me remember what's happening. This is exciting. We have to save the planet. You know, we're running out of oxygen. California's burning. 
that there's hope. There is hope. There is, and, and there's an extraordinary opportunity if more people will get active. That website again, Mimi. 2020voterscalendar.org. Voter, V-O-T-E-R, or with an S? Voters, all of us, plural. With an S. Okay, Voters Calendar. Thank you. Mimi Kennedy. Thanks, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Point to Point Navigation, a memoir by Gore Vidal. This is from the last two chapters and we're reading from page 258. In 1961, a new president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was inaugurated at the age of 43. With him, a new generation had taken the crown from the older generation as represented by General Eisenhower. There was triumphant talk of a new frontier, presumably to be crossed by all of us into a bright new land where the only shadow that marred the prospect was that of the hideous, murderous specter of international communism centered upon the Soviet Union, against whom JFK had sworn to bear any burden to ensure the ultimate victory of freedom, liberty, and so on. But early on, starting in 1959, under the general direction of then-Vice President Richard Nixon, who had many interesting Cuban mob connections, yes, B.B. Rebozo, his mysterious friend, was also linked not only to mobsters, but to the Cuban dictator Batista, who had been overthrown by Fidel Castro to the annoyance of the mob, an annoyance that turned to fury when Castro shut down, if only briefly, the mafia-run Havana casinos. Elements of the CIA were soon attempting to murder Castro, who, like all Nixon enemies, was, if not yet a communist, worst a communist dupe. The presidential election of 1960 was a close one, fought by Nixon and John Kennedy, an attractive Massachusetts senator whose father had, ironically, dealings with many mobsters during the pre-World War II period, as well as at the time of the prohibition of alcohol. The late film producer Ray Stark told me how during the short presidency of JFK, Joe Kennedy and Frank Costello, the retired New York mob overlord, would often have dinner at Kennedy's Central Park South apartment and rehash old crimes, often in the country of a retired teamster who gave great massages. Joe's mob connections were useful to Jack in the 1960 election and could easily have saved JFK's life in 1963 had Bobby Kennedy, in the interest of building himself up in the public eyes, not started arresting important mobsters, particularly in the so-called Appalachian Mob Conference bust, where they had all come together to confer about the secession of the leadership of the New York mob. I've long since forgotten how I first heard of the plot to kill JFK. While I had no idea at all of the Kennedy brothers' plot to kill Castro on December 1st, 1963, until I read a recent book by Lamar Waldron and Tom Hartman called Ultimate Sacrifice. It was assumed that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62 had sufficiently alarmed JFK and Castro's mentor Khrushchev so that they jointly backed down, putting an end, so everyone thought, to such dangerous adventures. JFK had pledged not to invade Cuba if Castro would allow inspections of any remaining missiles on the island. Since Castro did not cooperate, JFK then regarded his pledge as inoperative. In the spring of 1963, according to Ultimate Sacrifice, more a literal than an ironic title, John and, quote, John and Robert Kennedy started laying the groundwork for a coup against Fidel Castro that would eventually be set for what they called C-Day, December 1st, 1963. Bobby, like Nixon before him, was in charge of what would be the most secretive operation of its sort in our history. Since the CIA had, in the eyes of the Kennedys, botched the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the Department of Defense was to be in charge of this adventure, which would first engage mob hitmen to assassinate Castro and then replace Castro with a provisional government that would implore the United States to come to its aid and restore order. Ours is a society riddled with plots of every kind, from, let's say, one to bribe certain members of Congress to cheat Indians off of their casino money, to the financing, often secretly, of numerous presidential elections, while, simultaneously, great companies like Enron cheat customers, stockholders, and employees. Yet everyone who draws attention to all of this corruption is quickly denounced as a conspiracy theorist who means to undo the great fiction that anything truly wicked, at least in the murder line, must be the work of a solitary, lone nut who is simply evil. Hence the setting up of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone, crazed killer of JFK, Despite his own brief but presumably accurate statement after his Dallas arrest, I'm the patsy. Then, as planned, his being gunned down by Jack Ruby, a fellow CIA asset. Oswald, as lone killer, for no reason at all, and and addled Ruby, 
a one-time Chicago mobster who claimed to be deeply worried about the stress all this must be causing the widow Kennedy. And he goes on in Chapter 55. Ultimate Sacrifice describes how the Kennedy C-Day plan was penetrated by three mafia godfathers, Carlos Marcello, New Orleans, Santo Traficante, Tampa, Florida, and Johnny Roselli out of Chicago. All three were being vigorously pursued by Attorney General Robert Kennedy, along with a dozen of their associates, of whom six were also working on the Castro murder case. The crime bosses then used parts of the C-Plan, a.k.a. AM World, to arrange JFK's assassination in a way that would prevent a thorough government investigation in order to protect the coup plan, its participants, as well as, naturally, national security by invoking the secrecy surrounding the C-Plan. The mob bosses targeted JFK twice before Dallas, once in Chicago on November 2nd, JFK called off his motorcade, and then in Tampa on November 18th, he survived unscathed. Ultimate Sacrifice reveals and details why Robert Kennedy later told several close associates the name of the godfather, Carlos Marcello, who had ordered his brother killed. But he couldn't do anything about it for fear the Soviets might go to war. Ironic and tragic action. I recalled when over the years I'd asked why that what happened at Dallas happened, I'd answer because Bobby had broken a truce made with a mob by Joe Kennedy in 1960. The book, Point to Point Navigation by Gore Vidal. Gary in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Gary, what's up? I'm concerned about the voting. When I, I want to encourage people to get out and vote in person. I'm high risk myself. I've decided to go at least do early voting in person because of this yeah. new survey that came out where 80% of the Democrats are planning on voting by mail, 20% of the Republicans voting by mail. I'm concerned that Donald Trump's going to declare a landslide victory on election night because 80% of the Republicans are going to vote in person, and that tabulates immediately. Yeah, here's the actual numbers. This is from the MU Law Poll Twitter account, but this is the one that Ali Velshi has been quoting all over MSNBC. Among those who say they will vote by mail, 81% support Biden, 14% support Trump which, of course, is why Trump wants to destroy vote by mail. Among those who will vote on Election Day, 67% support Trump, 26% support Biden. And that's the uh, MU Law poll. So, yeah, you know, I get it, Gary. And there's probably a lot of people all around the country who are thinking just like you and they're going to vote in person. Somebody called in the other day and said words to the effect of, you know, my dad volunteered to go to World War II to fight fascists. And knew there was a very real possibility that he might be killed. The very least I can do is risk COVID by showing up at the polling place. I would agree with that sentiment if I was under 50. I would agree with that sentiment, perhaps, if I was between 50 and 60. <laughs> but if, well, if you're over 60, I would say be very careful. But, you know, yeah. I get it. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, Brian in Seattle. Hey, Brian, what's up? Well, just a quick question. What if the states don't validate the election results because they're crooked or something by January? Doesn't somebody have to be appointed president? And doesn't that fall back to the Speaker of the House? There's two possible ways that that scenario could play out. The least likely would be if by noon, January 20th, nobody has declared anybody president. Nancy Pelosi becomes president. She's third in line. The other more likely one is that we would have the 1876 scenario, which is if neither of the candidates gets enough electoral votes to hit that magic threshold, which, uh, what is it, 271 or whatever the number is. I, for some reason, I have a blank on remembering that number. If neither candidate hits that threshold, 
then the election gets thrown to the House of Representatives under the 12th Amendment. And in the House of Representatives, each state has one vote, and that vote is determined by the legislature of the state, the combined House and Senate of the state. And there's, I think, 29 or 30 states where the legislature is a majority Republican and 20 or 21 states where the legislature is a majority Democratic. And so Donald Trump would get reelected. And that's what happened in 1876. Sam Tilden, the Democrat, won both the popular vote and the Electoral College. But he was one vote short of that threshold of 50 percent plus one to meet the constitutional. Mm-hmm. I won the Electoral College. And so it got thrown into the House. Um, you know, it, it didn't quite work out as cleanly as what I just described because they cut a deal to end Reconstruction. Basically, they stabbed African-Americans in the back. And that's how the, the president became the president. Rutherford B. Hayes became president. But that's the scenario, Brian, and it's something that uh, Congressman Connor referred to. When he I'm was just looking for new strategies <laughs> to get yeah, out of Yeah, no, it's, it's grim. And I wrote an op-ed a few months ago saying it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is part of Trump's game plan, because all he has to do is have a half a dozen states or even just two or three really large states, electoral college-wise, to simply say we can't certify the vote or we're providing a competing certifications of the vote. And at that point, you know, it just goes to the House. And you can look that up on the 12th Amendment. Holly in Silver Springs, Maryland. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? Last election cycle, I was trying to bring people's awareness up about purging of the rolls, and people weren't listening. That's one good thing. That The only good thing that Trump has done is raised our awareness, man. Our yeah. awareness is raised. But my point was... You were talking about, you know, David Fromm and George Will and people like Steve Schmidt and everything. They're all well and good. They're very intellectual. I agree with a lot of what they're saying. But my big red line and what Democrats have to realize and articulate is the role of government. Nobody's really taking up for it. And that's what they are attacking. It's basically that's the that's a basic thing that's happening here. They don't believe in government. The Republicans have not believe, believed in government since Reagan, and they have been dismantling it. And that's another fine thing that Trump has done is really brought, you know, shine the light into the little hole there and expose them for what they're doing. The thing is, we're not good at the messaging. I don't know if you've ever had George Lackoff on your program, I have, but uh, several times. he's very, yeah, very good at the messaging part and and how we just cave to whatever they say. We we've been put on the defensive. We're not good at messaging. We're not good at articulating that. And I think if we if we brought that to the forefront and and raised awareness about that it's really easy it's a really easy argument to make you know that's what i say to my democratic friends and i and also the other thing is we've got to realize that it's across the board it's moderate democrats it's it's left right center democrats all believe in government so the purity test has got to go out the window any democrat is fighting for the government, basically. And so that's why Biden's fine. He's coming in and he's bringing a whole cadre of people left, right and center. And I have friends that are are balking again and even saying they're going to vote for Trump. I don't know if they're saying it just to get a rise out of people, but (laughs) we're fighting for the government. We've got to frame it that way. There's nothing wrong with government. We've been put on the defensive. Oh, I'm the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. Okay. great. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. The big point here, Holly, and the reason why these guys have spent the better part of really since the Harding administration, but on steroids since the Reagan administration trashing the idea of government is that there is only one agency that has the power to push back against billionaires and giant corporations and that's the power of government government is the only thing that can push back against them and protect the average working person whether it's in the workplace whether it's in the marketplace whether it's in the ballot box and that's why they hate government Right. And that's what I tell my friends when they start getting down on government and, and not and poo pooing. Oh, well, they, you know, corporations should get a tax break. But I said, you know, they want to privatize everything. Are you going to have a better case to make against the corporation or your government? 
You've got a better foothold yeah. with your government because you vote. Yeah, you can reelect your government. Yeah, I got it. Holly, thank you for the call. Spot on. Paul in Natick, Massachusetts. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Something that's been really bothering me. Because we're losing the White House and because we're in a tough election this time around, I think our messaging really needs some work. We seem to be coming off of our back heel talking all about Donald Trump when we have some great ideas of our own and we should be getting people excited about what we want to do and what we think the country needs. And I don't know if you did. did you miss the convention last night, Paul? Did you miss Bernie's speech? Did you you miss what happened? I mean, it was all about what we want to do. I I thought that it was absolutely brilliant. There was a lot of positive stuff. I don't think that when your house is on fire that you can ignore that fact. And and when there's an arsonist standing in front of your house and just lit it on fire, you can ignore that fact either, Paul. You've got to address that. And the simple fact of the matter is the polling shows that the majority of people who are planning on voting for Joe Biden are actually voting against Donald Trump. Let's use that. But I don't think we're doing the right thing by using that. We're just going to end up losing an election because we're not getting people excited about Joe Biden. And we're not getting people excited about Kamala Harris. And all of this. Yeah, I think I think people are, Paul, and, and I'm willing to cut you a little slack and assume that you're not just another one of these Republican concerned trolls who first time caller to the show that the RNC is paying to say, well, I'm kind of worried about the Democratic Party. You know, I'm just going to assume that you're not one of those fools. But, you know, I'm just saying, get ready. You're going to see this on a lot on Twitter, on Facebook, and people who get past a call screener into this show of, oh, well, I'm just really worried the Democrats aren't, you know, and the Democrats this, and Joe Biden isn't good enough, and, and, and you know, he's not progressive. Oh, maybe we should talk about... Our damn house is on fire. Robert in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? Good afternoon, Tom. I have a question about effectively allocating campaign contributions. In the past, I've donated to Bernie and Elizabeth, and now I get solicitations from Move On, Act Blue, Donate, and we'll divide your contribution among several congressional candidates. So I'm just trying to decide, with limited funds, how to decide where to most effectively put these things, whether it's flip the Senate or campaigns or Act Blue or Move On. Act Blue is basically a uh, payment processing system that is, I believe, owned by one of the Podesta brothers. They take a small tip, or right, a small percentage, if you allow them to. And they make enough off the people who say, yes, let me give you a tip, that all the people who say, no, I'm not going to give you a tip, you know, they can afford to process. You know, if they're slicing and dicing candidates and pitching that to people, they're doing so in the hopes that you'll say, yes, here's a tip. You know, it's great that they're there. They have made it possible for candidates to do fundraising without building a a back-end accounting infrastructure, which is just wonderful. Uh, You know, they're doing good work, but uh, I don't see them as progressive activists or anything. Uh, You know, Move On obviously has a long history of doing good work. Uh, Indivisible is another organization that has a long history of doing good work. But personally, for myself, Robert, um, I look at individual candidates, and, and when an individual candidate does something that I think is really cool, um, you know, when uh, Ayanna Presley says something or AOC does something or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a candidate here in Oregon that I, that I support does or says something, I like to reward them by sending a small contribution, even sometimes 10 or $15, more often 25 or 30 but I'm not, uh, you know, desperate for cash right now, so, you know, I can afford to do that. But that's how I've been doing it, and I well, suspect that, a lot that, of people are doing it that way. Yeah, sure. So directly to the candidate that you like, as opposed mm-hmm. to wondering where exactly it's going. Yeah, and generally it goes through Act Blue anyway. <laughs> so, so right. but that's what I would do. Robert, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. It's a great question. It's a great question. Michelle in Denver. Hey, Michelle, what's up? We're excited about Joe Biden. He's a decent, kind human being, and he actually cares about the American people. The fact that he talked to the train conductor, the fact that he would talk to just ordinary citizens on that train tells you he's a kind, decent human being, if nothing else, and that he cares about people's plights. He called the guy that had the heart attack that was the train conductor. Who does that on a normal basis? These are things you should be excited about. We have the people that care on our side. They're not perfect. 
Can they work on things? Yes. But they care about the American people, and that should be enough to get people excited right now because the mess we're in because we have a president who doesn't, who could care less whether a guy had his knee stepped on for nine minutes or care less that 171,000 people have died. That should be enough to excite you. I'm kind of tired of our party getting bashed by people who don't see the importance of having people in office who actually give a dang about whether they live or die or give a dang about how much money they make or give a dang about what you do on an everyday basis. We've got to change well the said, culture Michelle. in our country. Michelle, i got to wrap it up, but thank you for the call. Spot on, and thank you for rebutting our concerned troll caller. As I said, you know, you're going to see these concerned trolls all over social media. Screw them. Right? To hell with them. I don't know how to say it more clearly. In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Our democracy's at stake, our house is on fire. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.